Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. So let's pray as we get started. Lord God, we give you thanks this morning for your word. We give you thanks for all the resources and all the tools that we have in order to study your word and study your word at a deeper level and study your word together. And Father, we pray that we would grow together, not only through this resource, but through all the resources that you've gifted us with. And Father, we ask this morning that you would speak to us through the most powerful tool, through the primary way that you speak to us, and that is through your word. And I pray that you might give us comfort, you might give us encouragement, you might give us guidance, you might give us direction, you might strengthen us through your word, and that we might see you more clearly for the time that we spend this morning in your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. We are continuing our series called Dark Night, and we're looking about those dark seasons, those dark times of life, those difficult times that life sort of throws at us. And today I want us to, I want us to talk about the idea of expectation versus reality. Expectation versus reality. When you expect something and then you get the reality. Some of you have seen the memes on social media. There's the expectation, there's the reality, and the reality never matches up with the expectations. And when the expectation doesn't match up to reality, it's very easy to get discouraged. It's very easy to get disheartened. It's very easy to say, I just don't know what's going on and get very confused. And so I want us to look at a, at a very familiar, for probably some of you very familiar, maybe for some of you it's new, but a familiar passage, and it's the story of Elijah. And I'm just going to tell you, there have been so many times in my life, I think this is, I was looking back over my files, I think this is the third time that I've preached on this passage here, and I have, n- I have never preached on it the same way twice. Uh, God just keeps bringing me back and I just, and God keeps bringing more things to light from it. And so today, as we talk about this idea of a dark night, I want us to think about this idea of expectations versus reality. And as we get into it, let me give you a little bit of the backstory before we, before we get to this point. God had made a covenant, a, a divine agreement with Israel and gave them very explicit directions You follow me, you trust in me, you live by faith in me. You don't turn to other gods, you don't turn to idols. Because if you do, then I'm going to bring famine, I'm going to bring drought, I'm going to bring these calamities upon you, I'll bring foreign invaders and all sorts of other things. Israel does not listen. And Israel keeps drifting further and further away from God. And because of that, God raises up Elijah. And Elijah, the prophet, a spokesperson for God, Elijah goes before the people and says, there won't be any rain until I say there's going to be rain. Thus says the Lord. And so for three and a half years, there's no rain. So famine comes. And and we find that the Bible sort of traces what's going on with Elijah, how God takes him out into the wilderness. We talked about the wilderness experience last week. He takes Uh, God takes Elijah out into the wilderness and Elijah is out there and he is divinely fed by these ravens that come and bring him meat and he's able to drink from this brook and then that that brook dries up 
And then Elijah is, is directed to go to a widow, and, and there he lives with this widow and her son, and he lives with her, and God miraculously provides for that family. But then God says to Elijah that he, he, it's time for the drought to end, and Elijah goes and he faces off against these prophets. There are some prophets of Baal, the storm god, and some prophets of Asherah, and this goddess. And so he faces off against these two groups, and he faces off against them on Mount Carmel. When uh, we went to Israel last year, we got to visit Mount Carmel and got to visit the traditional site where Elijah faced off against these prophets. So he's got 950 prophets that he's facing off against, and they cry out to the storm god, and he calls out to the God of Israel. And he has made a little agreement with them, whoever answers by fire, that's the one we're going to follow. All the people said, we agree, okay, that's great. And then, so they have this showdown on Carmel, and they cry out to the storm god Baal, and there's no answer. Elijah even trash talks them. Maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he's attending to his needs, meaning maybe he's in the bathroom. And so he's really just trash talking these prophets. And there's no answer because they're crying out to nothingness, to no one. And then Elijah tells the people to get some large jars of water and three times to douse the offering that is on the altar. And Elijah prays and God sends fire from heaven and it consumes the sacrifice and it consumes the stones and it consumes the water all around the altar. And then Elijah says, kill off the prophets of Baal. So they start killing off the prophets of Baal. So not only that, because the king at the time was King Ahab and his wife was Jezebel, you find Elijah goes up on a mountain and he prays. And he prays that the drought ends and God begins to send rain. So now God is answered by fire from heaven. He has answered uh, God's, uh, Elijah's plea, Elijah's prayer for rain. And so not only that, now some of the prophets have been killed off, these prophets that have met them on Mount Carmel. And Elijah's got to be thinking, this is looking good for me. I mean, how can anybody argue with this? This looks great. We are set. Ahab's going to go back. Ahab's going to go back and tell Jezebel. And Jezebel's going to think, oh my goodness, I can't believe that. Oh, surely the drought's over. This is a good thing. Clearly you had a showdown and okay. That's not what happens. Elijah's expectation does not match the reality. Whatever Elijah thought was going to happen did not happen. And we find that Elijah, this bold, uncompromising prophet of God, now faces a very difficult situation because now when his expectations do not match with reality, he has an issue. So let's pick up in 1 Kings chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and now he had killed all the prophets with a sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Uh, so help me, Elijah. I'm going to have your head. I'm going to have you murdered because of what you did. This is our first idea that we need to understand whenever we're dealing with expectation versus reality. When you feel hopeless in the present, revisit God's promises in the past. When you feel hopeless in the present, revisit God's promises in the past. Notice what Elijah does. 
Verse 3, then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. What happened? What happened to this bold, uncompromising prophet of God? Now he turned tail and ran. He goes, runs out into the wilderness, sits down under a tree, and says, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah's feeling hopeless in the present. I like to say he had a Jezebel moment. You ever have a Jezebel moment? Everything's going well, and then one loudmouth idolater opens their mouth and just throws you off. And that's what happens to Elijah. Elijah's like, oh my goodness. He's the guy who was on Mount Carmel saying, hey, maybe your God's in the bathroom. Maybe you need to cry out louder. Maybe, maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's busy. You just need to holler louder, guys. And now this is the same guy a short time later who's running for his life saying, it's enough. God, just kill me now. I'd rather just die. Elijah has reached this point of hopelessness. He has reached that point. And by the way, when we talk about biblical hope, and you've heard me define this over and over again, biblical hope is a confident and favorable expectation of a future reality. That's the idea of biblical hope. It's not wishful thinking. It's not I hope so. It's a confident and favorable expectation of a future reality. Hope is always future-oriented, which means when you grow hopeless, that means that your future orientation has shifted. If, if hope is a confident and favorable expectation of future reality, hopelessness is an unfavorable, an unfavorable and a non-confident expectation of what is to come in the future. Hopelessness says, God, I don't think you have, un- I don't think you have this under your control. Hopelessness says, God, I don't believe I can be confident in your promises. That's what hopelessness says. Notice what God does. Does God show up and say, Elijah, get yourself together. What is wrong with you? Get, man up. It's not what he says. Notice what happens. He lay down, verse 5, and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Here's Elijah. And what does God let him do? He lets him rest. He lets him rest. He gives him something to eat. I remember reading some time time ago, sometimes the most spiritual thing you could do is just lay down and take a nap. Not right now. Don't do that now. I do see that, by the way. (laughs) Amen. Some people, if you jerk awake, at least just say something, you know, amen, hallelujah, something. Uh, But you find that sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is rest. And not just rest. I don't mean just I don't mean just close your eyes. The most spiritual thing you can do is rest in the Lord. You realize that sleep, the right kind of sleep, that's an act of faith. 
We go to bed every night saying, Lord God, I'm going to trust that for the next eight hours, you've got this under your control. You do not necessarily need me to get my hands on this in order to work things the way you want to work them. Sleep is, a, is an act of faith. And so here's Elijah. He gets nourished by this food that God provides. He is allowed to sleep. He's allowed to rest. And then the angel Lord says, okay, it's, it's time to go, but you, you're, the journey's too great for you. And so God sustains him for 40 days and 40 nights. There's that time frame again as he goes to the Mount of Horeb, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, just the same place we looked at last week in the life of Moses, where God met Moses on Sinai in the burning bush, where God meets Moses during the Exodus to give the law to Israel. So Elijah is told, he's either told or he goes himself. The Bible isn't clear about which one, but he goes to Mount Horeb to Mount Sinai. What's going on there? That's where the covenant was given. And Elijah has been defending the covenant. And so now Elijah goes back to the place where God first made his promise to Israel. 200 miles away from where he is right now. So 200 miles he journeys for 40 days and 40 nights and arrives there at Mount Horeb. When you feel hopeless in the present, revisit God's promises in the past. What did God promise there on Mount Sinai? Listen to Exodus chapter 19 verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God says, this is my promise to you. Now, I know in recent days and recent years, I've read a lot of things where people have said, well, the reason America's in so much trouble is because America's broken her covenant with God. Can I just tell you, there's nowhere biblically that you find that God ratified a covenant with America, okay? That you just, you just don't find that. And I know some people say that, and I know there's lots of books out there about that, and lots of people may preach that, but you don't find that God made a covenant with America. You, never, you didn't find that God came down on Mount Vernon and met with George Washington and Gave him a covenant. You don't, you don't find that, all right? And so that may be a little unpopular for some people, but that's just biblical. You can't find that. However, however, the church, we are God's covenant people, and we are a covenant people spread out among the nations. Our ultimate nation is an, a heavenly nation. And so we don't find any nation uh, right now where we're looking at it and we're saying that is, that is a nation and God has made a covenant with them outside of Israel. And so, and so therefore, they're this, they're this set-apart people in that sense. We are set-apart people as followers of Christ. And so, but now we are scattered out all over the place and we are to live in the different nations that we live in as an influence to that nation recognizing that we have a dual citizenship. But you find that in this case, God made a covenant with Israel and Elijah goes back to the place where the covenant was made. What's he doing? He's revisiting those promises of the past. He's revisiting the promises that God made. Whenever we're feeling that in the present, we're feeling that discomfort, we're feeling that hopelessness in the present, we need to go back to the promises that God has already made and cling to those. That is the biblical pattern. You find this in Psalm 77, verse 7. Will the Lord spurn forever? 
and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Sounds a lot like hopelessness. But notice what the psalmist says. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. The right hand, the powerful right hand of God, the works of God. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Well, if you're feeling hopeless in the present, revisit his promises in the past. Revisit his mighty deeds in his word. You find this in Jonah. Jonah chapter 2 verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. What was going on in Jonah's life during this time? He was in the belly of a great fish. And if you can be in the belly of a great fish and say, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. That shows that you're remembering, you're, you're linking your faith to the promises that God has already spoken and you're trusting in he is who he says he is, and he will do what he says that he's going to do. So if you're feeling hopeless in the present, remember the promises in the past. So he's there on Mount Horeb. And when he's there, notice in verse 9, there he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? That sounds like a weird question. That seems really weird. What are you doing here, Elijah? Yeah, God, you're God. You know why I'm here. It's like, that, it's like that old saying about when God speaks to Adam in the garden after Adam and Eve sin and says, where are you, Adam? And as the old preacher said, it is not a matter of God not knowing where Adam was. God wanted to see if Adam knew where Adam was. And in the same way with Elijah, Elijah, what are you doing here? Not that God doesn't know, but does Elijah know what he's doing there? Listen to the words of Elijah. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. I'm the only one left, God. I'm it. I'm the only game you got. No one else has been following you like I've been following you. No one else has been praying like I've been praying. Nobody else cares. It's just me. And now here I am with you on the place where you made a promise, and I'm it. I'm all you have to work with. Notice what God does. And he said, God said to Elijah, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord is not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord is not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Here's, here's the next thing. When your expectation doesn't meet your reality, here's the next thing to remember. When you don't see God answer by fire, don't miss him in the whisper. Here's Elijah. He's on Mount Horeb. He's there on this place, and he's waiting. And what happens? God sends a wind and tear. The wind is blowing so hard, it's tearing the rocks to pieces. And you have to imagine Elijah's thinking, oh, this is it. But God's not in that. And then an earthquake and the ground is trembling. And Elijah's got to be thinking, this got to be it. I mean, the wind and now this earthquake and the ground, it's got to be, got to be God. But God's not in that. So then a fire comes. A fire comes and rests there on Sinai. This is certainly it. I mean, this has got to be it. 
I think Elijah probably really thought that had to be it, it. Why? Because that's what happened before on Mount Sinai. Listen to Exodus chapter 19, verse 16. This is when Moses is there at Sinai with the people of Israel after they have been brought out of Egypt. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. You find in Exodus 24, 27, now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. So Elijah's got to be thinking, this is it. God's about to speak. He's about to speak in this dramatic fashion. He's going to speak like he did before. He's going to speak just on this same mountain where God had visited Moses for the first time by fire, by this burning bush. And now God visited them a second time when he gave the covenant and the fire came down on the mountain. And now here is Elijah on the same mountain where those two incidents occurred and he's waiting and he's talking to God and now there's a fire and Elijah has to think, this is it. But it says the Lord wasn't in the fire. He was in the fire the first two times. Why is he not in the fire this time? But then there's the sound of a low whisper. Some translations, there is the sound of a still small voice. Other translations, there is the sound of a delicate whispering sound. If you go back to the way that some of the Jews translated it, it was this. It was a thin silence. God whispers to Elijah. When you don't see him in the fire, don't miss him in the whisper. What happens when somebody whispers to you? You, you get close to them. You lean into them. You pay attention to them. So here's God whispering to Elijah, letting Elijah know, Elijah, it is not always going to be by fire. It's not always going to be through an earthquake. It's not always going to be through a mighty wind. Sometimes I'm going to work in the imperceptible, behind-the-scenes ways that you will miss me if you're not watching for me. And I think we can do the same thing. When we have our expectations and they get so high and we're thinking, God's going to answer by fire. He's going to answer in this dramatic way. He's going to show up and he's going to move in some way. It's going to blow my mind. And God just whispers. We expect fireworks and he whispers. We expect some grand entrance and God just slips in through the back door. And now here we have Elijah confronted with this very thing. God speaks to Elijah and lets him know, if you're not seeing him by the fire, don't miss him in this whisper. This is the same thing that we find in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Not by might, not by spirit. That's not by the might of man's hand. That's not by man's earthly power but by my spirit. My spirit's the one who does the work. And how does God's spirit work? In so many cases, God's spirit works quietly and behind the scenes and that grassroots kind of movement that works in the hearts of the people. 
This is why, King, why Jesus talks about the kingdom of God and he gives some particular illustrations about how the kingdom of God works. Matthew chapter 13, verse 31, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Jesus said, what's the kingdom of God like? It's like a tiny little seed that you plant. And then it grows over time, a little at a time, and a little at a time, and a little at a time, until it gets big enough that it becomes a habitat for all these animals that depend upon it for shelter. He doesn't stop there. Verse 33, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. This is, I don't know how many of you got into bread baking during quarantine, but I did. And the carbs are strong with this one. Let me tell you, I've been baking bread. I have learned to bake bread. Thank you, Mr. Paul Hollywood from Great British Baking Show. And I have learned to break, bake bread. And, I am, and there, we have bread all over the place. It is, it is like, I'm always like, go get some more yeast. Go get some, go, I need more bread flour. I got more bake. And it's amazing to me. It always amazes me. You take just a, just a small amount of yeast, like seven grams of yeast. You put that into a lump of flour and you're thinking, this is not going to do a thing. And then you let it sit and you let it rise and it just starts growing. Sometimes almost looking like it's going to grow outside of the container. And it just grows and it grows and it grows. I saw someone uh, had posted online here recently. They said, we really are peasants again. Avoid plagues, bake bread, revolt. That's basically what we've been doing these last few months. We're all peasants. But as the bread grows, it's because that leaven, because the yeast is spread throughout this lump and it just grows. And I, don't, and I come back later and I'm going, whoa, look at how big this thing is. I don't sit there and watch it. But you come back and you say, wow, that's, that's, that's really, that, that bread has, has risen because of the yeast that's working. Now, do I see the yeast working? No. Do I sit there and wait and wait and wait and wait and wait? Oh, I think it's growing. I think it's growing. I think it's growing. No. It is over a period of time, given the right conditions, it grows and it spreads. And it spreads, that small amount of yeast spreads all throughout that amount of flour. And the kingdom of God is the same way. Sometimes we're expecting God just to make something in an instant and boom. It's just like microwave type of mentality. And God says, no, it's a, it's a slow growth. It's a slow rise, but it's real. And it's something you can depend upon. And it has substance. And it's by my spirit. And so we find that Elijah is reminded that God is oftentimes working in those tiny, small almost imperceptible ways. If you're not discerning, you miss it. Where is it in your life? You've been waiting. You've been calling out for God to answer by fire. And God just may be whispering right now. Don't neglect his whisper. Don't reject his whispers. Just because it's not as fiery as you thought it was going to be. Don't neglect listening to him in the whisper. What's the final thing we find? Well, says in verse 13, when Elijah heard it, when he heard that voice, when he heard that still small voice, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Second time. He said, same answer. 
I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek to take my life. Here's the last thing I want us to look at today. When you think it all depends on you, remember that God's plan is bigger than one person. When you think it all depends upon you or any other one person, remember that God's plan is bigger than one person. Elijah says, I'm it. It's just me, God. Everybody else is dead. They're either dead or they're traitors. And here I am. I'm the only one. I'm the only one worshiping. I'm the only one praying. And now I'm, I'm about to be annihilated myself. You're not going to have anybody. It's all on me. And clearly you're not doing what, you, what, what I think you needed to do with me. And because of that, I mean, you know, it's your covenant. It's your people. And I'm the last of them. What Elijah doesn't know is that he's not the last of them. And God could have told Elijah lots of things. But God does something which seems really strange to our ears. But again, just as God was reminding Elijah, I don't always work in the fire. Sometimes I'm in the still small whisper. God reminds Elijah here, Elijah, it's not all about you. It's about me. And I got a plan that's bigger than you. It includes you. And the reason it just includes you is because it is bigger than you. By virtue of it being bigger than just you, that means you are a part of a bigger plan. If you were the whole plan, I would agree with you. Oh, Elijah, you're right. We better do something about this. You're the only one. I can't just have my only guy get killed off. But God doesn't say that. Why? Because God understands there's a bigger plan. In fact, God has a very specific plan. God gives Elijah a succession plan. Notice what he says. And the Lord said to him, verse 15, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Maholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. And that's it. <laughs> that's, that's all he gives him so far as his expectation versus reality. Okay, Elijah, I hear what you're saying. Uh, it's not all about you. Go anoint this guy king here and this guy king here and this guy prophet in your place. And they'll mop up everything that you didn't get to do. Oh, and by the way, I got 7,000 people who are still loyal to me, just in case you're thinking you're by yourself and this you're not. And that's it. Sometimes God needs to remind us that we are a part of his larger plan. We are not the plan all in and of itself. There is no one person who is a full expression of God's plan other than Jesus. There is no one of us who is a full expression of all of the nuances of God's plan. We're all part of God's plan. So what happens We don't have time to read it all, but if you read on into 2 Kings, you find that Jehu actually does do exactly this. Jehu goes in, he has Ahab killed, he kills off some of the other prophets, he goes to find Jezebel, Jezebel's up in this tower looking down, and the Bible says she painted her eyes, she puts on her makeup, looks out the window, starts trash talking him, she's up locked up in her tower. And Jehu looks up and says, looks up some of her attendants and says, hey, any of you boys with us? 
I mean, this can go, essentially, this can go one way or the other. I mean, you know, you either with us or you're, you're with us or against us. So the guys are like, mm, it sounds, sounds plausible. So they throw her out the window. Her attendants throw her out the window. And she dies, lands on the ground. The Bible gets really graphic here right before lunch. Anyway, you can read that. There's blood spattered everywhere, and they stump her with the horses, and the dogs come and eat her. You're welcome. Think about it. We always, talk about, we always talk about your sermon at Cracker Barrel, but not today. Um, so she's killed and eaten by dogs, which was what was prophesied would happen. And then Jehu calls for a party. Hey, everybody, we're going to have a party for the prophets of Baal. Really? Yeah. I have decided I am going to worship Baal like nobody has ever worshipped Baal before. Well, we want to be here for that. Send out the invitation. Make sure everybody shows up because it is going to be a party you will not forget. It will be the party to end all your parties. Wink, wink. And so they show up. And Jehu says in the Bible, everybody here? And those guys are like, they're all here. They're like, everybody. Everybody. Okay, good. And so they kill them all at the party. And they, they do a little mopping up. You find in first, Second Kings chapter 10, verse 26, and they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it, the idolatrous uh, statue they were worshiping. And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. It was a public latrine they turned this worship spot into. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. Then we find a little bit later on that even though Jehu wiped out Baal, he still lingered around with some of the other idols, and God was not pleased with that. Showing again, I mean, even, even Jehu is not perfect, and, but he, he, didn't, he wasn't fully devoted to God. And so he did what God told him to do, but he didn't do everything that God had told his people of the covenant to do. That half-hearted devotion has led to, led to a half-hearted decision. But now we find that Elijah was told, Elijah, it's not all on you. It's bigger than you. Listen, when you think it all depends upon you, remember, you're part of a bigger plan. When you think of any, any one person, remember, it's part of God's bigger plan. God's plan, the only person, the only one person that all of God's plan truly hinged upon was Jesus. That's the only one person that the whole of his plan ever hinged upon. We are all parts of that plan. This is what the Bible tells us. First Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You yourselves are like living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are all parts of a larger house. We are all parts of the body of Christ. We are all part of the church. And so we come together and each of us brings the giftedness and the talents and the ways that God is blessed. And we come together and operate under his bigger plan. Whenever you're feeling your expectation doesn't meet the reality and you're wrestling with that, understand it's not all on you. It's not all on me. We are part of a bigger plan and God's got it under control. Here's Elijah out in the wilderness, hopeless. Here's Elijah wringing his hands. Here's Elijah saying, God, just kill me now. I would just rather die. God, I'm the only one left. God, why won't you answer? And God whispers to him in that still small voice and lets him know, Elijah, I haven't lost track of you. Elijah, I haven't lost track of this nation. Elijah, I haven't lost track of my plan. Elijah, I know exactly what I'm doing. I got it all under control. 
You think a Jezebel or an Ahab is going to pose a problem with me? No, uh-uh. You think some prophets of Baal are going to pose a problem with me? No, not at all. You think, I'm, you think I, Elijah, you think I'm sitting here on my throne, wringing my hands and knitting my brow and trying to figure out what on earth am I going to do next? No. I've got it all under control because I am the sovereign Lord God of the universe. I'm the God who can speak by fire and speak by a whisper. I am the God who can meet you on the mountain when nobody else is around. I am the God who can communicate to you, here is my plan. And I am the God who can tell you what is going to happen long before it's ever on anybody's tongue and long before it ever passes through anybody's mind. I am that God, Elijah. So, Whatever your expectations are, whatever you look over your recent past or your distant past and you say, God, I had these expectations. They don't match reality. Will you just remember these truths? Will you just go back and remember these truths and apply these truths? Remember God's promises in the past. Go to God's word. Bank on his promises. Live by his promises. Trust in his promises. Understand that when we're waiting for him to work in some majestic, fiery way, sometimes he's just going to whisper. So we need to be discerning and we need to be listening and have a listening heart whenever we approach God. And recognize it's not all about any one of us because it's not on any one of us. But we are all a part of God's bigger plan. And we find that all this comes together so beautifully in Jesus. All of this comes together whenever our expectation versus reality when, when our reality is off, so many times it's because we've lost track of exactly who Jesus is. And we try to do it ourselves. And we, and we try to do it in some fashion that is not of God, that's outside of his plan. There's only one plan. And that plan is that Jesus came and lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death on a cruel cross that each one of us deserved because of our sin. And if we receive that sacrifice, if we accept what he did, that he is who he says he is, and he did what he said he did, and we trust in him, and we trust that it's not on me to make up the balance. It's not on me to do enough good stuff and to exceed all of my sin and get past that and live the right kind of life so that God looks upon it approvingly. But if I just cast myself upon the mercy of God and say, God, I need you to forgive me. God, I'm asking you to cleanse me. I'm asking you for forgiveness through Jesus. He will do that. He will do that. And what happens then? Then you become a part of his redemptive plan. You become a part of that bigger plan. You become a part of that, that household of faith. You become that living stone that is being that is a part of the house of God that is being built up. You become a part of the body of Christ, part of the family of Christ. If you've never done that, if you're here today or if you're watching or listening later, let me encourage you, make that decision to follow him. Make that decision. Confess your sins before him. Repent. That's turn to him. Turn away from your sin and turn toward Christ and trust in him fully. And he will give you life. When your expectation doesn't match the reality of the situation, understand that God is still God. Let's pray. Lord God, as we come before you and we're encouraged by your word, Father, I pray that you might take these truths and you might transform us. Father, I pray that you would boost our confidence in you because we see you for who you are, that our confident and favorable expectation of that future reality is all wrapped up in the person of Jesus. And our 
confident and favorable future is wrapped up in a finished work in the past, in the work of Jesus on the cross. And so, Father, I pray that we would cling to that. We would cling to him. We would stay close to you. And that whatever season we may find ourselves in where our expectation doesn't match the reality, we would recognize that you are the ultimate expression of reality. And so, Father, we look to you. You are our living hope. Jesus is the one that we depend upon. It's not dependent upon any one person except for Jesus. May we cast our eyes completely and totally, fully focused upon him. So, Father, I pray that today, if there's any decision that needs to be made, maybe somebody needs to come pray here at the altar. Maybe they want to pray as individuals or with families. Maybe they would like somebody to pray with them. Father, maybe some want to talk to someone about how they can join the church, be baptized, or how they can know for certain that they have a home awaiting them in heaven through the sacrifice of Jesus. Whatever decision needs to be made, Father, I pray that you would grant your boldness in making that decision. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.